Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. You know, some people find the idea of holidays uh, silly. Some people find the idea of holidays kind of burdensome, like just an extra thing we have to deal with. Some people find the idea of holidays kind of shallow and false, right? Everybody putting on a friendly face and a happy face when deep down they're still hurting or they're grumpy or they're angry or the next day they're still going to be mad at each other. Um, and, and I understand all that because holidays can be all those things. And sometimes they are those things. Some people even refuse to, to uh, celebrate holidays. And, um, you know, there's, there's groups, there's, there's sects uh, and cults and religions where they think holidays are a bad thing to celebrate because they distract you from the real purpose of the celebration. Um, every Christmas, there's somebody, some, some, uh, some Christian, some Facebook post, some, some evangelical summer who likes to remind us all that Christmas is based on a pagan holiday. And therefore, you know, it doesn't, it does, we shouldn't be remembering something or other. Shouldn't be thinking about it. But it's interesting because as much trouble as we have with holidays, and and just to be genuine, I know that holidays are difficult for some of us. I know that. I get that. Right? I can only, I mean, I don't have to imagine. I'm human too. So I I know the feeling of being not at the same place that other people are at. Being in amongst a community of people who are rejoicing over something when you yourself aren't feeling that joy. When you're feeling burdened or sad or struggling or daylight savings time has just really messed you up. (laughs) and yet everyone else there's so much going on culturally the whole rest of the world is celebrating as near as it appears to you and it it sign of emphasizes perhaps your loneliness and your isolation and i understand that but what's interesting is that we have a god who commands celebration and you have to ask, how can God, as we know God to be gentle and empathetic and, and who even encourages us to mourn with those who mourn, how can he then come along and make commands like celebrate and rejoice? It does feel a little bit unfair and it feels a little bit difficult. I think let's just start by remembering that the term holiday, this is just, I think, a, a note to get us on the right sort of perspective as we're looking at our upcoming holidays. Holiday, of course, is a word which comes from the words literally holy days, days that we, we recognize, we set aside to recognize the sacred. Our whole life is spent in, in a world that appears secular, it appears driven by things that aren't sacred. They become mundane. Even just day to day, by its very nature, ceases to appear sacred to us because it's so daily. Uh, I had a friend who used to say, actually, I think that friend was me, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really careful about crediting other people. And I realized as I was crediting someone else that I think this one's me. Um, the problem with uh, daily life is just that it is so daily. And so we have the, it, we, we, we lose the sacred thing. So the idea of a holy day is to take a moment and intentionalize and say, this is special. There's a special moment. There's something sacred. So even when God calls us to celebrate, it's not just a buck up. It's not just a cheer up moment. It's not just like, hey, let's all be happy now. When he calls us to celebrate, he's intending it to be a time of reflection upon holy things, upon sacred spaces and sacred times. And this is the essence of what celebration is, not just the emotion, but this intentional moment, this intention to stop and remember the sacred things, things which are not shallow, things which aren't changeable, things which aren't just faddish and come and go, but things which are eternal, deep and profound and real. So far from holidays being sort of these fake moments, the holy days are called to be the moments we celebrate and remember the most real things of all. In fact, it's because of the way the shallow swallows the deep in our day-to-day life that such celebration becomes necessary. So what I want to do this evening is I want to take a look at how this worked for the Israelites. God commands the Israelites to celebrate. And in Deuteronomy, there's one chapter where he covers three of these celebrations. Now, just so you know, as we look through these, there's actually seven celebrations that God commands of the Israelites, and he commands them to celebrate them every year, and he commands them to celebrate them forever. 
is the language that's used. And so we're just going to look at three of those in Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're going to take a moment to look and see what, what, it, what is celebration about? And can a proper notice of celebration actually lead to a feeling of celebration? Can it lead to some emotions of joy, even if we're also in the midst of pain at the same time? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at Deuteronomy 16 tonight and just kind of walk through some of the celebrations that are there, maybe remind you what they're about and, um, and see how they apply to us. And then we're going to wrap up this evening by, by talking specifically how they're going to apply to us and focus over the next two months. So Deuteronomy 16, uh, the first verse starts this way. He says, observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. So here is God instituting, affirming a celebration, an, a, ho a holy day, really a holy month. And he says, in this holy month, you're observing it, and he tells us why, right? That's what we see in this verse. We see the why. Why are we supposed to set aside the month of Aviv? And, and uh, the month of Aviv, is, it doesn't line up with any of our months because the whole the whole way that the Jewish calendar works is on a completely separate way than ours is. Theirs goes by the moon, ours goes by the sun, and the moon and the sun don't always agree. So there you have it. So I can't tell you what the month of Aviva is. It changes every year. But, but it's the month that they understood, and they were to set aside this month, and God tells them, here's why. Here's why this month should be observed as sort of a sacred time. And it says, to remember. It's an anniversary month. It's the month that God brought you out of Egypt by night. It's fascinating that he emphasizes sort of the main points of the celebration. And then as we go through the celebration, you'll see that these main points are reiterated in the way they're called to celebrate. It's that God brought them out of Egypt and that he did it in the dead of night. Why is that important? I'm not sure, but it's emphasized throughout the celebration. So it must be important. So here's why. The reason for the month is to remind them of what's called Passover. In fact, this celebration is often called Passover. Sometimes it's called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Passover is one day within that. Sometimes, shorthand, the entire week of unleavened bread is called the Passover. It just depends on where you are. But it's reminding them about the Passover. And, and I, I, a lot of you know the story of the Passover, but let me just remind you what the story of Passover is, what that's about, and why they're supposed to remember it. So what happens is... The Israelites, as they became a nation, God promised Abraham that he would produce nations out of him. And then God brings through Abraham, we get to this place where we have Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons are all going to become heads of tribes. And these tribes are going to spread and they're going to be huge and they're going to be more numerous than the sands in the, in the beach or the, the desert or the stars in the skies. That's sort of the, the hyperbole that God uses. And he says that they're going to come from these 12. It's just this inauspicious beginning of 12. And you think that's amazing. Well, what happens is from Genesis, the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus, that is indeed what happens. We suddenly discover that there's millions of Israelites who came from these tribes. But what God didn't tell them was that from Genesis to Exodus, the other thing that happened is these Israelites all became enslaved by the Egyptians. So there's millions of enslaved Israelites. So you can't even really call them Israelites. They don't have a home. They barely have a nationality. They, they don't have their own traditions because they're, they're, they're slaves. They're not free people to do what they will. They are there to serve the Egyptians. You can argue, and it seems true, that one of the reasons the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites is because they became so plentiful, that they became scary to the new pharaohs, the ones who didn't know how they had arrived there. So what happens is that God comes to Moses at one point and he says, Moses, it's time. I want you to free my people. I want you to set them free. I want you to bring them out of the slavery that's under Pharaoh. And I'm going to teach you what it means to be a free people. I'm going to teach you what it means to be my people. I'm going to make you a nation. And you're going to be a nation that blesses all nations. This is the promise I made to your ancestor, Abraham. <coughs> and the time has come. And you know the story. Moses is a little uncomfortable with that, argues about it, not sure what to do. God says, here's how we're going to affirm all this. I'm going to send you back and you're going to do these miracles. You're going to perform these plagues, which are going to show how much stronger I am than all the Egyptian gods. And that's not just for the Egyptians. That's also for the Israelites, because that's what they've been living under all this time as well. 
So he goes back, he does all these plagues. Each of the plagues, when you walk through them, they are very specifically directed at an Egyptian god to show that that god is nothing and the Israelite god is everything. And Pharaoh goes back and forth between wanting to let them go and not wanting to let them go. And finally, he's just stubborn and he says, I'll never let you go. And we come to the final plague in which God says, here's what's going to happen. The firstborn male of everybody in Egypt is going to die. Death will come to every firstborn male. But then God says, but... For anybody who believes me, and I think if you read the text, it does not eliminate Egyptians and foreigners and people who aren't Israelites. I think anybody can hear what God says and follow the command he gives. He says, anybody who believes after all the plagues you've seen that I am the God of gods, that I am powerful enough to actually do this, that I'm in charge of your firstborns and your secondborns and your Nile rivers and your locusts and your frogs and anything else that you can imagine, the very lifeblood of people, that I'm in charge of all that, and if you believe that, and you now are prepared to accept that, then you know what? You can look to me instead of looking to your Egyptian gods for protection at this moment, and I will protect you even from my own justice and plague. And so what he does is he gives them a command. He says to the Israelites, but really to anybody, and I think everybody hears all this, He says, if you will sacrifice a lamb, not to your Egyptian gods, not to any other gods, but if you will sacrifice a lamb in recognition to me, and if you will put the blood across the doorpost of your house, that will be the way that death will know that you trust me for protection. You'll be under my protection and death will pass over your house. Just pass on by. And so that happens, and those who do that are indeed saved, and you can imagine just the incredible wailing and mourning for, the, for everyone who doesn't do that. And the fear, the fear that struck them all. And God says, now's the moment, at the moment of this fear, I want you to go, and I, they're going to be eager for you all to leave. So I want you to actually ask them to send you away with money, because you're going to need some. So they send them away with jewels and gold and all sorts of stuff. And sure enough, the Egyptians are like, get out of here. You've brought us nothing but death. And so the Israelites run and they flee to the wilderness. And then, of course, once they get out there, then the Pharaoh's like, well, that's stupid. I just lost a million people of free labor. Probably can't be that bad. I should just bring them back. Well, you probably know the story here again, that God leads them through the Red Sea, actually parts it, and then swallows up Pharaoh and his people as they chase after them. And then the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. But this moment when God made them free people, when he brought them out of slavery to Egyptians, when he brought them out of bondage, when he basically created them, this is their origin story, right? Superheroes have origin stories and so do nations. And this is their nation's origin story, that when they come out of Egypt, they are now a free people. And the entire next 40 years, one way to think about them, the the laws, the commands, the way that God speaks to them over their process, their, their travel across the wilderness, one way to understand that is it is God taking an enslaved people and teaching them how to be free people. Teaching them how to govern themselves. Teaching them how to live with each other without someone forcing them to do things. But this moment of Passover, when they fled in the night and they ran and they had to get across the Red Sea and they left Egypt and God saved them and brought them out, God doesn't want them ever to forget this moment because this moment defines them. When anybody asks them, who are you? Why are you a nation? Their answer should be, because God brought us out of Egypt. Because God rescued us from slavery. Because God saved us. But we all know this to be true. If we don't rehearse our history, we forget it. Don't we? (laughs) And if you have been born into a free people and all you've known is freedom, you have no concept what it even means to be an enslaved people, do you? It becomes so easy to forget the nature of where you came from and the work that was done to bring you out. And if you forget your origin and you forget that you were once enslaved, you might forget how dependent you are as a nation upon God. You might forget that God is your everything. It's so easy to forget where we come from once we're free. It's so easy to have a what have you done for me lately mentality with God, isn't it? Well, what have you done now? 
even when the thing that God did is so big as to define your entire identity, we still can forget and think it doesn't matter if he didn't do anything for me today. And God says, I need you just every now and then to take a look back and remember who you are and what I've done. And you know, it's amazing. God commanded this thousands of years ago and to this day, many Jews define themselves by this moment, by this ritual, by this Passover, and this is how they know who they are as a people. And this has been so strong, in fact, that it's brought them through exile. It's brought them through moments, many moments across history where they had no homeland. It's really difficult to hold on to your identity as a nation if you have no homeland. Imagine if America was conquered and Americans were taken all over the globe and enslaved to other people. It would be hard to remember what it meant to be an American because so much of it is geographical, isn't it? And yet for the Israelites and the Jews, they were able to maintain their sense of who they were because they remembered where they came from, because they rehearsed this. And this is something they could do no matter where they were. They could celebrate the month of Aviv. So that's the why. That's the purpose at this moment for the celebration. Now, let's look a little bit at the what. This is what he says you should do on this, this month and this day. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd, at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. And there you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening when the sun goes down on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning, return to your tents. For six days, eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day, hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. And so you think about the what. Here's the things you're supposed to do. And some of the connections to the why are obvious. He tells them why. He says, don't eat anything with yeast. Why? Because it'll help you remember how you had to leave in a hurry. You didn't have time for yeast to rise, right? That's the point. You had to leave so quickly, you couldn't even wait. If you had bread making, you wouldn't have had time to wait for that yeast to rise. So it's to remind them sort of of the terror of fleeing in the night. He wants them to reenact, in a sense, this moment of fear and thrill and freedom all at once. The haste with which they left, how quickly God moved once he moved. The timing to remind them of leaving at sundown. He says, do all this when? At sundown to remind you that you left a sundown. The place, the timing, all of it is very specifically calculated to help them remember what happened. And some of those connections aren't as clear. Why is it that they're only supposed to eat this place that the Lord will choose? Why can't they do this anywhere? Why are they supposed to return to their tents in the morning? Why are they supposed to eat unleavened bread for six days instead of just that one day? And why are they supposed to take a day off and not work at the end of it? You know, I don't know the answers to all these, but it's interesting to me that so many of these things are characteristic of all holidays, aren't they? What's one thing we do at every holiday? We eat. It's true, isn't it? I don't know if God just knows there's something really memorable about eating, you know, or if he knows what evangelicals have known for a long time, that people attend meetings more consistently if you feed them. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's interesting that all holidays we eat. But you know what else? We eat differently. Have you noticed that? Every holiday you eat differently. You eat something special. You don't eat stuff you eat all the time. Let's be honest. I don't mind a good turkey sandwich, but honestly, I don't think turkey is a very favorite meat of a lot of people. <laughs> Some people only eat it at Thanksgiving, right? And other people, like our family, we have special side dishes that we only make at Thanksgiving. Christmas, there's things we only eat at Christmas. You know what? I only drink eggnog at Christmas. Now, I drink non-alcoholic eggnog, just to be clear. But I only drink eggnog at Christmas. I don't drink it any other time of the year. In fact, I don't even like it that much. But I really like it at Christmas. It's weird. It's like, it's, it's like when it turns to you know January, then all of a sudden... I don't even want eggnog. It's gross. 
<laughs> but when we hit December, I'm like, just get some eggnog. There's, we eat specially. We eat differently, but we eat. The other thing that we do on holidays is we take the day off. We rest from work, right? I, I want you to think about that. I want you to hold that thought. We're going to look at a couple other celebrations, but just kind of let that percolate. Why? Why do we do those things? Why are they things that we're called to do in, in these Israelites we're called to do? And why do we do them at holidays? Why do we eat stuff, special stuff? And why do we rest from work? What is all that about? Well, hold that thought. Let's look at another celebration commanded by God just in the next verses. So in 9 through 12, he says this. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the, put the sickle to the standing grain. So the moment you start harvesting, so what he's saying, right? You grow stuff, and when you start harvesting that, count off seven weeks. Now, this is interesting because this is another issue with Jewish holidays. That's not going to be the same every year, is it? <laughs> I mean, there's a general harvesting time, but depending on the rains and where you are, that could change, right? But he says, count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle by the standing grain, then celebrate the festival of weeks. So we have the festival of unleavened bread. Now we have the festival of weeks. To the Lord your God, by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your town and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows living among you. And remember that you were slaves in Egypt and carefully follow these decrees. The why is right there at the end. And it's very similar to the why for Passover, isn't it? But Passover emphasizes the escape. The festival of weeks actually emphasizes who you were and who you are. Not the process of escape, but that you were slaves and now you're not. It, it's like God just wants them to take a moment and remember, you have not always been free. Even if you individually have always been free, know that your people have not always been free. You were slaves in Egypt and now you're free. I want you to remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that's why I want you to follow these decrees as you remember you were slaves in Egypt. Notice what, what it is you're supposed to do. What is the what that you're supposed to do with this why? Well, number one, you're supposed to think about this fact. Here's what I love about this. As you're harvesting your grain, what is the one thing you remember when you think about being slaves before? You remember that this is your grain, <laughs> right? What a difference is that? If you were in Egypt and you harvested grain, it wasn't yours. You didn't get to keep it. You were harvesting it for someone else. You were literally working in somebody else's farm. Now, he says, as you harvest that grain, I want you to celebrate the fact that this is your grain. Which is why I think he says, he doesn't say, bring a sacrifice, a mandatory offering of your grain. What does he say? He says, bring a free will offering. He really wants to emphasize, because it's your wheat, you can do anything you want with it. And because you can do anything you want with it, I'd like you to celebrate that by maybe giving some of it away. Because when you're enslaved and none of it's yours, you don't have that freedom, do you? You can't give stuff away. It's taken from you. So it's not a tax, and it's not a temple tax, and it's not a sacrifice in the way that you're called to at the Passover lamb, where you have to do this. It's a free will offering. It's yours to give. But notice also the very deliberate, inclusive nature of this holiday, right? This holiday, he says, this holiday is to be celebrated not just by you, but it's to be celebrated by your sons and daughters, but it's also to be celebrated by all your servants, male and female. It's also to be celebrated by the Levites in your town. It's also to be celebrated by foreigners. People are just hanging out with you. And special attention to the most needy, the fatherless and the widow, the orphans and the women who have no no means of sustenance themselves. And then when you think about the free will offering and you think about how a free will offering was usually uh, anticipated in Leviticus, a free will offering isn't something you give to God. It's something you give to your community. And I think in this case, that's deliberately true. That what he's saying is you're coming together. Remember, you were slaves. Now look around you. Who among you is where you used to be? Who among you doesn't own their own wheat? Who among you doesn't have their own harvest? Who among you can't cut their own grain? The foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, the Levites, by the way, because the Levites didn't get land of their own. That was part of the deal. So who among you doesn't have these things? 
perhaps your own children and your servants. And then what should you do? Well, look at how much you have. And in proportion to what you have, you invite everybody to this incredible festival of weeks and you spread the wealth. You share what you have with others. And then he says, very specifically, rejoice. See the command? He doesn't just say, remember here. He says, rejoice before the Lord your God. Notice here again, they're supposed to do this at a specific place, aren't they? At the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You're supposed to do it at a specific time. Six weeks, uh, seven weeks, pardon me, after you begin the harvest. You're supposed to do it in a specific way. Same ideas here. So hold that thought. Let's look at one more. Do he goes on Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 17 and introduces yet a third festival. He says, celebrate the festival of tabernacles. I want to be really clear because tabernacle sounds like a really big word. And a lot of us remember the tabernacle in the desert, which predates the temple. And a lot of us think tabernacle means religious gathering. It doesn't. It means tent. That's all it means. The tabernacle they used for a temple was called a tabernacle because it was a big tent. This is literally the festival of tents. It's not a festival of temples. It's a festival of tents. He says, celebrate the festival of tents for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. This is very similar to the last festival, but it's not the same. The previous one is the festival of weeks, but at the end of the festival of weeks, you have one more seven-day festival. It's just as inclusive. He again reminds us about the, the fatherless and the widows and the servants and the foreigners and all of those people. What is not mentioned here, but is implicit in the title and is explained specifically in other passages, is this is called the Festival of Tents because when you've all come to the place you're supposed to do this and you're no longer living at home, guess what you live in? Tents. So for seven days, you all camp out, literally. You all camp out in tents. And you may think, oh, I knew it. I love campouts. I don't love campouts. But I will tell you why this is important for the Israelites. Because once again, where did they live for 40 years as they traveled across the wilderness? In tents. And it was intense. <laughs> what? <laughs> Too late, they did. <laughs> um, and now it would be easy as you're living on land where you get to harvest your grain and your wheat and you're living in structures, it'd be easy to forget that you were not always settled people, that you didn't always have a home, that you were forced to live in tents and travel as you looked for a home. And by bringing them back to live together in tents, it's reminding them that they were nomads for so long. So these three festivals coming close together as they do, they remind them that who they were and that God created them by helping them escape. It reminds them that they were slaves and now they're not. And how to treat other people the way they would have wanted to be treated when they were slaves. And then it reminds them how they used to be wanderers and now they have a home. And all these things remind them. But it's, it's hard to remind people of things that they live in, right? I mean, they'd be like, well, I didn't forget I have a home. Yeah, but you forgot you didn't used to have a home. Well, I didn't forget I'm free. Yeah, but you forgot you used to be a slave. Well, I didn't forget that nobody's you know, trying to kill me. Yeah, but you forgot that God rescued you. So by doing these things, it brings them to this place of remembrance he says to them in this verse again, as he did in the previous festival, he says, be joyful. Be joyful. Again, he emphasizes the inclusion. Again, he emphasizes, uh, emphasizes this idea, idea of not just doing this anywhere willy-nilly, but doing it in a place of God's own choosing. And here he emphasizes most specifically the idea of gratitude for what you currently have. Being grateful for where you are as you more thoroughly remember that it is not inevitably always that way. And then he says this. 
He says, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. And no one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So he wraps this up by making it a command, doesn't he? By saying, these aren't just nice ideas. He says, three times a year, I want at least your men. Now, the implication and the reality of the few times we know they practiced this is the men brought their wives and children. He really means everybody. <laughs> he says, three times a year. But I think the issue here is if he, if he just says, you know, some representative from your family, then the husband's like, I'm going to stay here and take care of the wheat. You guys go or something. And he's like, no, the men got to come. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God. So at a place he will choose. So it's a pilgrimage, isn't it? They have to travel from wherever they are to Jerusalem, as it turns out. That's the place God chooses. They have to travel from where they are to Jerusalem. And as they travel, they are to come with a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. I want you to think about this a second because it's easy to think about the gift. But what do you have to know to be able to bring a gift? How much God has blessed you. <laughs> By saying you have to bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord has blessed you, it forces you to stop and remember that the Lord has blessed you. Doesn't it? And it forces you to actually kind of quantify it, interestingly enough. It forces you to kind of actually think about it and say, well, I guess I had nothing and now I have this much, so I should give a proportion of that. Interestingly, it doesn't say what proportion. That's still up to you. But even to figure out a proportion means you have to find how God has blessed you. It also means that God believes he has blessed you at least a little. And you just need to pay attention. But if it's only been a little, and you believe it's only been a little, then you only bring a portion of that. So if you are a fatherless or widow, maybe you don't bring anything. Or maybe you bring something really tiny, because the exhortation is everyone should bring something in proportion. So you have these three festivals, Passover, or the Festival of Unleavened Bread, Passover of the Festival of Weeks, which, by the way, is also called Pentecost. Those of you who are familiar with that term, that's what that means. And the Festival of Tabernacles, which is really the Festival of Tents. And in each, we are to bring a gift in proportion to what we receive. So let me just paint a picture for you of these festivals, kind of how they flowed together. Because they can sound really dry, but they really weren't. God calls them to rejoice, and he sets up a very joyful environment for them to rejoice in. He calls them to come from their homes to a special place. But as they come to the special place, they're all anticipating the following things. Everybody will eat well. Everybody. The servant, the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, and of course, the people who own the farms. But everybody will eat well. They'll eat meat because of the Passover. They'll eat a lot of unleavened bread. They'll eat a lot of harvest grains and wheats. They're going to eat well. They're going to do it for weeks. And they're all going to do it together. And for one moment, everybody is enjoying the blessing of God together as a community. If you got blessed, guess what that means? It means I'm going to get blessed at this particular festival. There's a real sharing together of everything that happens at this festival. And you come and you do camp out. Those of you who like camp outs, that's a great picture and an accurate one. You camp out together in your tents and you hang out together and you stay there for weeks, potentially days for sure. And you barbecue. You barbecue. There is so much meat being sacrificed in the Passover. When you really add up what they're supposed to bring to the Passover, the priests, the Levites are round the clock barbecuing that meat. And a vast large portion of that meat is not just being sent up in flames and smoke and aroma to God. It's being distributed to the community. That's the way the law says it is to be done. So God calls them to bring this meat. Everybody brings what they can out of their wealth, out of what they've received, out of how they've been blessed. They bring it. It all gets put together. The Levites are the barbecue masters. They're doing all the work. And then they pass it all out. The Levites get their portions as well. 
Everybody also brings their wheat from the harvest and they celebrate and there's special attention to those who normally in the year may not even get very much. And it's just a great big barbecue camp out party for seven to 28 days, depending how you read all this. That's a party. It's a big one. And there's plenty. There's plenty. And all are called to come to the same place so that it becomes a big communal event. And so that those who have little will have as much as those who have much. Part of the reason, a very practical reason that God says, don't just do it willy-nilly, is because if you just do it willy-nilly, that foreigner, there's going to be the foreigner alone in his, his little, little wherever he has plot of land or, or if he's working for somebody else more likely, who's not going to get as much. He's not going to be able to celebrate it, nor is he going to want to, nor is he going to understand it. But if you bring everybody together, everybody remembers together, and as they remember together, there truly is this communal sense of we are in this together, whatever this is good, bad, or indifferent. And even though God calls people to come and celebrate and to rejoice and to party together, there's implicitly the recognition that it's not always an easy time for everybody. Somebody's fatherless. Somebody's a widow. Maybe only just. And yet they're still called to come and rejoice and be part of this celebration. That's the picture. And why? So they remember who they were. So they remember that they are in this together. So that they remember the God who's over them. In fact, let's break it down. What do the Israelites learn from all this reflection? Being called to come together and reflect together communally as a nation, what do they learn? Number one, they learn the value of reflecting on things that are bigger than you. Let's be honest. There's a, there's a verse where Paul says, look not only to your own needs, but also to the interests of the needs of others. I think the reason he says that is because I think if we're really, really honest, it is the normal state of affairs that 99% of the things we think about and do in a given day are for ourselves. Now, I said it's a normal state of affairs. I'm not condemning you for it. I'm saying that when you wake up in the morning, what do you do immediately? Most of you, there are some exceptions, like, like mothers of young children. Sometimes the first thing they do is take care of their child. I get it. There are those moments in our lives. But over the span of our whole lives, what do you do? You start taking care of yourself. You brush your teeth. You, you get dressed. You feed yourself some food. You start thinking about what you're going to do today and how you're going to survive the day and what your needs and your interests are. And that's okay. But... In the day-to-day -day world, when we forget about sacred spaces and sacred things, we begin to live as if we are all there is, and we begin to spend all our reflection time on who we are. And in fact, if I may gently suggest that one of the reasons, not all of the reasons, not the only reason, there's lots of other factors here, and I'm not blaming anybody for this, but one of the reasons that holidays are sometimes difficult for us is because we turn even more inward. Because we begin to wonder about what's wrong with us. We begin to wonder about why we aren't happy like everyone else is. And our culture, I think, to be perfectly honest, has sometimes subtly and not so subtly fed us a lie, which we need to be really careful about. And the lie is that the best way out of depression is to do more and more reflection and self-focus on yourself that the way to understand who you are best is to spend a lot of time trying to figure it out. I'm not saying you shouldn't spend any time, but I want to suggest God has a different approach. And it's this. He says that the best way the Israelites can get to know who they are is to get out of their own heads for a moment, is to get out of their own way for a moment, is to reflect on things bigger than themselves like their history and their origin and where they came from, and the God who rescued them. Because there's an identity in that that goes beyond your immediate circumstances, isn't there? It doesn't matter whether you're in exile or not to understand who you are. So you reflect on things bigger than yourselves. You get outside of yourself a little bit. They were, they were called to be intentional. And part of the way they were called to reflect on things bigger than themselves was to change their routine, was to go places they didn't normally go and do things they didn't normally do with people they didn't always see and eat food they didn't usually eat. 
It's a way of intentionalizing it. That's also why you take off work. Because that breaks the routine, doesn't it? I think that's why eating and not working are such a part of holidays. Because it's part of intentionalizing that we're going to think about something else by taking a moment to do something else and to be with different people. You know, you think about Christmas and Thanksgiving, one of the things that's interesting, again, about the holidays is a lot of us travel to go be with people we don't see all the time. We go to the family, right? We come together. You don't do that every day, right? It's a different thing. It's different people in a different place. It's also reflecting on things that are, that are eternal. Thinking about a God who rescued you is, is to think of yourself not just in this little moment, but in this span of history, and even that span of history is in the span of eternity. And so you think about eternal things which are bigger than you, and that immediate things that you do think about become things that are bigger than you, like community. You suddenly think that, oh yeah, I'm part of this community. Even as a stranger, even as a fatherless person, even as an orphan or a widow, I am part of something. And when you don't feel like you're part of something bigger, that's lonely and isolating. And again, I love the way God emphasizes those people more prone to feel isolated and alone and says they should be part of this festival. I love the idea that everyone can participate. No matter how alone or isolated you are, that's part of the beauty of a holy day. Everyone can be part of something bigger for this moment. Even if it's only for this moment, for this moment, you know, one of the things about Christmas that I personally do love is there is this sense, not by everybody, but a lot of people, that all of a sudden they remember that, that Fred in, in the Christmas Carol says this. He says that Christmas is this moment when we all remember that we're all fellow brothers and sisters on the same road of life rather than strangers to each other. And I think there is that potential in Christmas to look around and say, yeah, we all stop. Nobody goes to work on this day, and that's something we all share, by and large. Some people work on Christmas, but very few. So reflecting on things bigger than you was part of the reason for the celebration. Number two was remembering and reenacting. I think it's fascinating that when God calls you to remember things that he's done, he often calls the Israelites to reenact it, relive it. Not exactly. Don't actually go back to Egypt and put yourself in bondage and then wait for God to bring you out. But do a little mini play about it, right? If you look at the, the Jewish celebrations today of Passover, they are literally that. They have scripts and dialogue. Do you know that? They have little books that tell them who says what lines and what roles at what times. And the kids are all part of it and they love it. Because reenacting it helps them remember things they never saw right? So we do things in a specific way to remember what it was like, not only for us, but for our ancestors. It's like we, be, we, we begin to be part of that history by reenacting that history. We're invited to actually use our imaginations to learn the lessons as firsthand as possible. I kind of love the fact, as a, as, a, as, a, as a creative guy, I love the fact that, that God thinks holidays should be something that you have to do a little play acting. <laughs> that you're supposed to use your imagination for it. It's not simply a dry rote thing. You're supposed to think about, oh, oh, what, 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 what would it have been like to be slaves in Egypt? That must have been terrible because it's healthy and good for us to know that. So that when we realize we're not like that, we're like, oh, that's kind of great. It gives us perspective, doesn't it? When we remember and reenact, it gives us perspective on our lives now that we otherwise would find very hard to see. It helps us, again, to get outside of ourselves. It helps engage us with the community because we reenact together these things, don't we? And here again, anyone can be part of this. It doesn't matter whether their ancestors were actually there or not. Everyone is invi invited, and because none of us were actually there, we all get to engage equally in this reenactment. It's not like because you happen to have a great 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 grandfather who was Abraham that somehow you know this better than the person who didn't have that great 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 so on. No, we're all equally stupid about it. 
Third thing that comes up in this is gratitude to God. And there's kind of a progression here, right? We reflect on things that are bigger than us. We first open ourselves up to the recognition that we're not all there is. So then we begin to re remember and reenact some of those things that are bigger than us, that, are, that come before us. And then as we remember and reenact these things, it be, reminds us how much God has done for us. As we begin to gain perspective, we begin to remember that our lives and our identities flow from him. That's what the Israelites would have felt. And they begin to take time to intentionally thank and praise God for who he is and who he has been and what he has done. So the gratitude flows from the intentionality of reflecting on things bigger than you and then remembering and reenacting them. So God says, come celebrate in this way. Do specific things at specific places at specific times because it can lead to gratitude. And then as it leads to gratitude, it leads to giving and serving. And I put here from your privilege. Now, I debated using the word privilege because that is a loaded word, right? White privilege will immediately... Some, somebody just turned off Facebook. And I think not everybody means the same thing when they say things like white privilege. So what I'm about to say, I'm not speaking for anyone else. But I think there is this idea which is useful for us to recognize that each of us has sort of privilege in the sense of we have something that we have been blessed with that someone else has not been blessed with. And we have a couple of options about what we do with that. One is we can just ignore it and pretend that we earned it. <laughs> God has blessed me because I'm better, and therefore that's the way it should be. And if you didn't get that, you're just worse. This is called the caste system. And it's something we ostensibly disavow here in America. There's another way to look at it. We could say, well, I have these things, and I don't deserve them, and so I feel really guilty about that. But guilt and gratitude don't flow well together. And that leads to the third option. We realize what we've been blessed with. We're grateful for it. And then we say, how can I take what I have and make sure that those who don't can have some of that? I don't have to give it all away. That's guilt. <laughs> but can I give a proportion away? And the exhortation in all of these celebrations is that the gratitude should lead not to guilt and not to superiority and not to condescension, but to serving and giving for those who don't have. By the way, is it possible to serve and give in a way which is condescending and superior? Unfortunately, yes. But I would submit this. Service and giving which stems from gratitude, communal feeling, getting outside ourselves, recognizing something bigger than ourselves, that kind of service leaves no room for condescension and superiority, which is why I think this order is really good. First, we recognize there are things bigger than we are. Then we remember and reenact what that looks like. Then we give our gratitude and our thanks to God for where we're at. And then we recognize that God has blessed us. And the best way to deal with that blessing is to give a portion to others. And that blessing can be material, but it can be other things as well. And then... Finally, if we're really not coming from a place of condescension and superiority, the last step makes sense. If we are coming from a place of condescension and superiority, you will find that going from serving to this last step makes no sense to you. And that's when you know you need to back up a couple steps and check your gratitude <laughs> and your reenactment and your memory and whether you're really recognizing something bigger than yourself. Because the final step is worship of God and accepting from community. In other words, humility. There's a certain point in all this celebration where we recognize really how little of anything we have we created ourselves. Where we recognize really how little of anything we even give we can claim credit for. Where we recognize that also tomorrow we could be enslaved by Egypt again. There's no promise in this that won't happen. And sometimes it kind of happened. Maybe not Egypt, but others. So there's a recognition that where God has brought us from, we are still dependent on God. And so all this gratitude leads to an actual worship of God. An actual recognition that we are dependent on him. And a humility towards him. But it also leads to a humility towards the community around us where we also see ourselves not only as the blessed one able to give, but also as the one able to receive from those who have been blessed in ways we haven't. And by meeting together in the same place, together and saying we're all in this together, 
we all become givers and receivers. And that requires humility and dependence. So I think these are the things that the Israelites learned when they did the celebrations. It is an interesting thing to note that as you go through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that there were only three or four specific moments after the very first few years in the promised land, there are only three or four specific moments where it tells us they actually celebrated any of these festivals. And you could just say they just didn't think to mention it the rest of the time, except each time that it says they celebrated the festival, it's like a big surprise. <laughs> it literally in two of them happens because a king is, is just kind of exploring his archives and he finds these instructions here from Deuteronomy and he goes, we haven't done this for a hundred years. Maybe we should give it a try. And they all do it. And they're like, whoa, that was great. One of those is Hezekiah. Just a few generations later, not very long later, we come across Josiah who's looking around the archives and he finds Deuteronomy and goes, oh, we haven't done this since Hezekiah. <laughs> Maybe we should do this. It's interesting how they forgot to do the thing God called them to do. And not to get too esoteric, but I think you can trace their lack of humility their lack of giving, their lack of gratitude, their lack of memory to their lack of celebration. They didn't do the thing God told them to do so that they precisely wouldn't forget who they were. And as a result, they forgot who they were. Ironically, the times that they do go back and celebrate it are often when they aren't in Israel anymore. And then they're like, boy, I wish there was a way to remember who we were. And someone's like, here's a way. And so they reach for it and it saves them from complete sort of internal annihilation. So what does this mean for us? Here's what we want to do over the next two months. Uh, two months. You can add an S to that if you'd like that to be grammatical. Here's what we're going to do over the next two months. <laughs> we're going to treat these holidays not just as holidays but holy days. But that doesn't mean we're going to be all solemn because their holy days included barbecues, campouts, and partying. So what are the things we want to do for our two months? Number one, let's reflect on things bigger than we are. We're going to spend time on our Sunday nights and in our groups reflecting on things that are bigger than you. It's fine and important at times to be introspective and think about who you are. And some of you do it more than others, and that's okay too. But it is also vital that occasionally you get out of your own head and you reflect on things that go beyond you. Because guess what? The Wizard of Oz was a fraud. And when he said everything you need is inside you, he was lying. He was lying. The Tin Man did not have a heart. The Cowardly Lion was cowardly and the scarecrow was dumb and Dorothy was not home. <laughs> Sometimes you have to get outside your head to recognize all the answers are not in here. You're not going to find them. No matter how many layers of the onion you peel aside. I used to say as a counselor, Sometimes you got to peel onions. I get it. But the problem when you peel an onion and you keep peeling an onion is you know what happens? There's nothing inside. <laughs> Eventually you have no onion. I had a lot of tears. Ooh. Man, where were you when I used to say that? Oh, I did. I'd not even think of that. Lots of tears and nothing there. Man, that's so much better. Okay. So we're going to reflect on things bigger than us. We're not going to spend all our time thinking about who we are in relation to Christmas. We're going to spend time thinking about how Christmas is bigger than you, how Thanksgiving is bigger than you, how the holy days are bigger than you. We're going to remember and reenact. It's interesting that Christmas has some traditions that are all about reenactment. It's the Advent wreath is all about reenactment. It's about stepping back, remembering what happened at Christmas and reenacting it. In our little way, again, metaphorically, not by actually going back and reenacting the incarnation, which would be impossible for us. 
but by doing it through lighting candles on a wreath. So we're going to do Advent. We're going to remember those things. We're going to come together at special events and services. And the purpose of all these is to be remembering and reenacting what this season is about. We're going to spend time doing that. We're going to give gratitude to God. Part of our holiday season specifically includes a holiday whose primary purpose is giving thanks. I know Thanksgiving has become a complicated holiday in our country. I acknowledge that. And I don't want to dismiss the reasons it's become complicated. But I want to tell you that the purpose when Abraham Lincoln declared Thanksgiving a national holiday had nothing to do with pilgrims. Zero. It had to do with him realizing we'd just come through a civil war and we were not annihilated. And Abraham Lincoln said, you know what we really ought to do now and then? Let's give thanks to God. So Thanksgiving may be complicated, but Thanksgiving is not, right? <laughs> Thanksgiving can be thorny, but giving thanks is not. So as we approach our holiday season, whatever you think about the Thanksgiving holiday, whatever traditions you want to do or not do, can we nonetheless give gratitude to God? Can we give thanks? And if Thanksgiving happens to be a really appropriate way to do it, that's sort of culturally reinforced, I'm all in favor of that. Giving and serving from your privilege. We have next week something called Operation Christmas Child. If you have not checked your emails, please do. We'll be getting together to give from our proportion of how we've been blessed to children across the world. Sometimes, literally, fatherless. We'll be doing other opportunities. Even in giving presents this year, can you think of it that way? Rather than a ritual where you have to give something and you have to outgive the person who gave you something and you have to make sure that you all give equally. If they gave you, you got to give to them. And rather than it becoming that kind of stressful rat race of competition of giving, can it become a reflection of our recognition of how we've been blessed this year? And therefore, can we pass that blessing on to someone else? Can we give somebody something meaningful to us? Can we give somebody something meaningful to them? Can we give somebody something that makes them feel the way we've been blessed to feel at some point this year? Can we give to each other because we really are in this together, whatever this is? Isn't that interesting? We were all in this together during COVID and then COVID sort of ended, sort of didn't, and we realized we're still in this together. <laughs> we can acknowledge it. We can pretend we're not. But the reality is we all are born. We all live a certain number of years and we die and we all do that. <laughs> and along the way, some of it's hard and some of it's joyous, but we're all in it together. And it's weird to pretend we're not. We're going to do some worship of God, and we're going to do some accepting from our community together in humility. Christmas carols, church services, Christmas Eve, prayers together with your family on Thanksgiving or Christmas. Take any of these opportunities to specifically worship and remember your dependence upon God. Do you have others? Do you have much? Then give to others and worship God. Do you have little? Then worship God for what you have and humbly accept from your community as needed. Don't try to outmatch in giving. And don't turn aside other people's service on your behalf. We truly are in this together. So one way we can do all this right now, and I know we're running a little bit late, but I really want to do this because it's a remembering and it's a reenactment. One way that we can do all this, one thing that God, that Jesus called us to do is called communion. And it's a moment where we remember and reenact the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, that's what Paul says. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, to a degree, reenact the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Proper reflection may lead to genuine celebration. I'm not making a promise. I don't know this for sure. <laughs> but I know that this seems to be where God is headed with the Israelites. And it does reflect things I did learn in counseling and as a counselor. This is our hope. 
Frankly, it's my suspicion. But either way, I'd love for you to experiment and find out. If you want to prove me wrong, you have to actually try the proper reflection first. So join us as we make the most of the next two months to reflect and reenact with a goal to all of the following. We choose to see the next two months not just as a holiday season, but as holy days. The beauty of our holy days, combining with the holidays of a secular culture, is that it allows us space to celebrate. The rest of the world says, yes, you can focus on these things at this time. And we say, thank you, we do it anyway, but we'll take the advantage of this opportunity. We get to sing worship songs to Jesus at people's doors. I know people think caroling doesn't happen anymore, but I've done it many years, and it's amazing how many secular people will stand and listen to you sing about the Messiah coming to earth to rule. We hear the songs in grocery stores. We hear them from pop culture icons. We get to hear people wish us a Merry Christmas, a Merry Christmas. And by the way, when that happens, that's a bonus. That's not a demand we get to make, just for clarity. We get to watch Christmas movies and specials, and we get to talk about them. And we get to talk about the birth of Jesus. And for this one time a year, even our increasingly secular culture says, we give you permission. Do we need permission? No. But why should we not take it when they grant it? So for the next two months, we will meet that head on. And we will reenact as often as we can. And we will remember and reflect as well as we're able. And it may lead even for those of us struggling, even for those of us who are fatherless and widows at this time of our lives, even for those of us who've had one cold after another for the last three weeks, <laughs> even for those of us who still find COVID has not left our shores or your body. For our bodies. <laughs> it still could be that perspective on something bigger than who we are may lead to genuine celebration. Very briefly, here's an overview of the schedule. Tonight, we did, we talked about proper reflection can lead to genuine celebration. You can check that one off. You've accomplished that moment. Next week is Operation Christmas Child, as I mentioned, and it's a great opportunity to remember that there are people out there. There's a community that extends beyond our shores of fatherless people and widows who are struggling to provide some sense of celebration for their own children. And together, we can help make that possible. Not through condescension and superiority, but because we can say, here in America, we have been blessed with a certain proportion, and we can give that. So we'll come together next week. If you have questions about the details, check your emails. I know for a fact, okay, I know for a strong suspicion that most of the members of Focus Church do not read their emails. Go back and look for the email about Operation Christmas Child if you want details. But otherwise, meet us here next week at 6 p.m. But if you read the emails, you might come prepared, and that would be nice. Otherwise, come and we'll have a good time anyway. Uh, there are ways, even for those who are not local, to partake of this. So check that email out. November 20th, we will gather back together. We'll reflect on gratitude. It's Thanksgiving Sunday, so to speak. We'll reflect on gratitude. We'll talk about what it looks like in God's world. November 27th through December 18th, we will reenact and remember through Advent. We will spend a little time each Sunday night lighting a candle and talking about an attribute of God. We're going to reflect not on ourselves and our responsibilities during Christmas, but on who this amazing God is. And so we're going to take each candle to think about an attribute of God, and we'll have special events during the course of that. Again, check your emails if you want specifics on the events. And also, your group leaders will know these. And if they don't, quiz them, and then they'll be forced to find out. <laughs> December 24th, it says, question mark, question mark. I need you to take a poll. Where is this poll? It's in your emails. <laughs> <laughs> I need you to take a poll so I can remove the question marks. We have never done a Christmas Eve service at Focus precisely because we want people to gather with their families and we want to give them room and freedom to do that. This year it happens to be on a Saturday. I don't know why that makes a difference, but in my head it does. So because it does, I said, well, we can do a Christmas Eve service, but if I'm, only, if I'm going to do it and it's only my family there, we will do that at home. So if you want to come have a Christmas Eve service, fill out that poll, and when we know that we have enough people, 
we'll, we'll do it. But just let me know. And what's important here, you are not more spiritual. You don't get spiritual points for saying you want to come to a Christmas Eve service. You get spiritual points for telling me the truth. Okay, that's what I want. All right. If you're trying to figure out what answer I want, that's the one I want. The truth. Okay. I can handle the truth. So that's December 24th. So that's, that's it. That's kind of the, the rough overview. More details are in the newsletter I've sent you. Thank you guys for coming. And uh, let's just have a really good second annual season of celebration here in Focus Church. Go with God. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.